And I'm not a really good American because I like to form my own opinions. Huh? What? There's tons of examples of corporate greed, inequality, and disregard for the environment that make people wonder if markets are evil. And they are. Maybe Denise is right about America being the land of opportunity, and maybe it yields at the point about the machinery of capitalism being oiled with the blood of workers. Where it's like, hey, wake up, liberals. You can't always do, uh, sometimes you gotta, uh, you know, uh, but that's a, that's that's actual quote from Karl Marx. In recognizing a communist, physical appearance counts for nothing. If he openly declares himself to be a communist, we take his word for it. Um... If I were to ever start a country with a communist government, wink, 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 12 years. Men are seduced by communists, women, so much so that they deem communism nice. Communists murdered mostly the Nazis. Bottom-up horizontal connection, sharing at all levels is key. Describing is anarchy. Are you an anarchist? I mean, am I a member? An anarchist group, yes. Anarchists have a group. I believe so, sure. What kind of garbage is that? Oops, my anarchy symbol. Welcome, welcome to the Three Left Show. Let's check our levels. I'm your host, Dan Platt. With me is... There it is. Hello, I'm your co-host, Michael Walsh. This program covers news, issues, and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective. For the curious or the committed, promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy in a commons economy. Discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is of itself and for itself, the meeting point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology. We proudly wave the flags of the three lefts. Great job. And I, I wanted to tell you from last week, uh, the breathing away from the mic, mucho better. I'm working on uh, it. <laughs> mucho better. Um, <laughs> I, I know the French for it. Anyway, now I have to work on not breathing at all, or at least turning my mic off when you are reading. So anyway... Welcome to Three Left Show. We're a reading hour of sorts. Uh, we read articles uh, tied into a certain theme, topic. Uh, today I wanted a break from organizing stories and how to do it better, or what are other people talking about it. You know, we've been doing that for the last month. Let's do an ecology story, at least doing one once a month, do an ecology episode. Yeah. So just kind of checking in on not, not the state of the environment, that's something that could be determined on your own, but just um, usually the first half is a statement of the problem or what the kind of the general consensus answer, good, long-lasting, deep answer is, uh, not just some techno fix. In fact, that's actually a point. And then the other half will be about permaculture and how to resist permaculture becoming or other types of radical environmental activism being co-opted and, bec and become the next hot topic. So uh, this is from a, play, a piece in Australia or a publication called Ecologist, Informed by Nature. Really like them. I'll be reading more from them in the first half of the hour. This hour, we'll be doing two stories from them. The first is called Carbon Dioxide Removal Sucks. So, Mike, have you heard of geoengineering and such kind of promises that we can just sequest carbon dioxide out of the air and make things better, um, mitigate climate change? not really well not the last familiar okay well I'll, I'll bring you up so in the last 20 years similar to the kind of bumper you just heard from como of how we're going to mitigate the harm from the pandemic by just 
closing things just enough until, you know, just it, it, can our hospitals handle the amount of sick, not rather lessening the amount of sick people. Thus, it's like, okay, we're not going to stop or slow climate change, but we're going to at least do something that mitigates the harm enough to keep business as usual going. Okay. So one of those techno fixes is the geoengineering of taking carbon out of the air, the atmosphere, or pollute, but then stop uh, the smog or the pollution from going to the atmosphere in the first place. You collect it, and then you reuse the chemical composition of, of like, say, the pollution, the air pollution or water pollution, and try to reuse that in the processes that you have. Okay. So that exists. So it's a battery of technologies or processes that go under, you know, sequestration. But there's different types of storage of the carbon dioxide or there's just the just the holding of it. But similar to a lot of Elon Musk projects or corporate welfare, it's really all just a lot of bunk. Let's explore how and why. Carbon dioxide removal systems, CDR, put more greenhouse gases into the air than they take out. Surprise, surprise. Carbon dioxide removal systems touted as techno-fixes for global warming usually put more greenhouse gases into the air than they take out. A recent study has confirmed. Carbon capture and storage, CCS, which grabs carbon dioxide produced by coal or gas-fired power stations and then uses it for an enhanced oil recovery, or EOR, emits between uh, 1.4 and 4.7 tons of gas for each ton removed. Direct air capture, that's DAC, which sucks CO2 from the atmosphere, it emits uh, 1.5 to 3.5 tons for each ton it recovers, mostly from fossil fuels used to power the handful of existing projects. So let's look at oil. If, D, if DAC was instead powered by renewable energy, as its supporters claim it should be, it would wolf down other natural resources, and things get worse as it scales up. To capture one gigaton of CO2, which is one fortieth of the current global emissions, by the way, would need nearly twice the amount of wind and solar electricity now produced globally. The equipment would need a land area bigger than the island of Sri Lanka and a vast network of pipelines and underground storage facilities. It is not all going in the Sahara like some uh, graphics kind of like say like, oh, we could we only need this much of the Sahara to make all the solar power that the world would need. That's an abstract concept. It's not going to be built in the Sahara, and to cover that amount requires solar panels and access of more than could ever really be uh, practically produced. Decarbonization. Sreka and Lynchenberger demolished the case put by governors, governments and fossil fuel companies for investing in these type of systems and show how research efforts are slanted to avoid discussion of the full resource costs. They also challenge the ways that so much CDR research focuses not on its extremely dubious worth as a tool to combat climate change, but on whether it can make money. Economists envision the CO2 in a gaseous or solid form being marketed as a commodity, like all things. But this, too, could operate at scale only in a world of techno-fantasy and or late capitalist dystopia. True cyberpunk. Sierka and Lynchenberger write that market actors seeing avenues for profit and seeking government support, like, he, uh, like the Elon Musk empire, are the main promoters of CDR by mechanical and chemical methods, 
as opposed to the natural methods such as planting trees. Fossil fuel producers are keen too. They falsely claim that CCS can help produce green electricity from coal or gas. That's kind of what clean coal kind of is. Uh, Moreover, the main use to which sequestered carbon is currently put is for enhanced oil recovery, uh, an oil and gas production technique. The carbon is pumped into underground reservoirs containing oil and gas, helping to push these products to the surface. So basically, you take carbon out of the air only to uh, basically get more oil and gas up. Governments have long backed the industrial CDR, and that has intensified since the IPCC, that's the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, reports in 2014 and 18, which pointed to negative emissions technologies, in particular bioenergy with CCS, producing electricity from biofuels and sucking back the carbon emitted with CCS as a way to meet decarbonization targets. But as these researchers point out, they're not putting in the full resource costs, and also the results are that they earn more than they take in, which is similar to making ethanol and other such biofuels. Here's a biophysical slant of it. Chemical climate scientists have slammed the scenarios in these reports that rely on unrealistic and dangerous assumptions about using a vast proportion of the world's land to grow crops for bioenergy. But that has not stopped state backing for these projects. The U.S. government alone sank $5 billion in research for CDR in 2010-18. Sakara and Lynchenberger point out, UK Committee on Climate Change says that CDR is a necessity, of course. And the European Commission has incorporated industrial CDR into its Green Deal. The trough of development funding is only getting bigger. Humanity's collective biophysical need, in some quotes, to reduce the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere is the standard by which Sakara and Lynchenberger judge these technologies. This helps them to cut through the mountains of hype about it, including articles focused on how cost-effective it is, or claiming it is carbon-reductive compared to a hypothetical business-as-usual case. I've covered this kind of um, data massaging in the past, in past episodes, about uh, energy efficiency and such, that they're always comparing what, like, what we're doing now or what could, we could be doing to a hypothetical worst-case scenario and comparing the efficiencies then and saying, oh, look how much better it is from when we basically have you know, no restrictions whatsoever, let's say. Geological impact. In the case of, or the geological type. In the case of CCS, Sakara and Lynchenberger point out that it cannot reduce the stock of atmospheric CO2 since it cannot store more than it captures. In order for the CO2 to be captured by this method, it has to be added to the stock in the first place, almost always by a power station or some other industrial process. If the carbon is stored rather than used for oil production, the process could avoid being net additive. But renewable electricity generation linked to storage would be much more energy effective, as the research team led by Strigoris Khalifa University in Abu Dhabi calculated recently. So why would you invest in fossil fuels plus CCS in the first place? Furthermore, in the real world, now CO2 captured by this method is not stored, but used for the you know, oil recovery, that is to produce more oil. All five of the largest CCS projects recently listed by an oil industry journal, one of which, Petronova, is currently mothballed, 
send the captured CO2 for this oil recovery. Other CCS facilities that take the carbon out of natural gas without the gas being burned, e.g. in the manufacture of hydrogen, is also very often sent to be used in EOR. The Global CSS Institute industry, industry body says that of the 10 new projects that are recently listed, three will send CO2 for oil recovery, two are considering it, and the only two plan dedicated geological storage. No information provided for the others. How about burning it? The life cycle analysis of these processes, their global warming impact is quite dire. Paulina Germaro of Carnegie Mellon University and her colleagues estimated that CSS and EOR emits about roughly between four and five tons of CO2 for each ton sequestered. This is the carbon sequestration, if you've heard of that buzzword before. And in the year, 10 years since their article was published, no one has questioned their numbers. Researchers who claim that these uh, processes is carbon negative are not telling the full story. When is that new? We found that papers that deem CSS and EOR to be climate mitigation technique either fail to account for all emissions and or they make the assumption that this displaces conventionally produced fossil fuel energy. DAC technology sucks CO2 from the air using SOBENTS, solid chemicals that absorb the CO2 molecules, or they use aqueous solutions containing amides, which is a nitrogen-based compound, all these techniques require a ferocious amount of energy. High-temperature, sorbent-based techniques need masses of heat energy, usually supplied by burning natural gas, which straightaway makes them net CO2 emitters. Yay. Here's for capture itself. I know. Look, I'm starting with the bad news that, yeah. like, oh, the techno-fantasy, is a, it's a fantasy. Right. You know? But this is, this is a part of growing up. It's a part of losing your innocence and actually being able to deal with the problems. Uh, realistically, and being the actual adult in the room. But for corporations' part, for these systems to be scaled up, using renewable en renewable energy implies using prodigious amounts of wind and solar, as though there were not enough concerns about the danger of resources being grabbed from the global south for large-scale renewables. Bolivia, anyone? For those who like numbers, the estimates of energy required the capture one gigaton of CO2, you need about 1390 to 2789 terawatt hours. And uh, for to also use it for electricity generation from renewables, it's 2019 to 2805 terawatt hours. On top of the energy, there's the land and the massive mobilization and diversion of material, human, and energy resources. Sakara and Lynchberger point out, and once you scale up technologies of this kind, biophysical impacts include groundwater contamination, earthquakes caused by the vast volumes of CO2 stored underground, and of course, fugitive emissions that pollute into the air. The researchers found that for DAC enthusiasts, the major but generally ignored policy issue is whether renewable energy should be channeled for carbon removal rather than used directly to reduce carbon emissions by powering homes and everything else. Yes, why not just use renewably produced electricity hard enough itself to produce at scale without causing further resource stresses and close down fossil fuel power stations, assuming you are not just trying to invent survival strategies for oil and gas companies, that is.
So now the societal. Politicians and researchers alike are avoiding the question of whether using electricity generated from renewables to power carbon recovery can ever make sense. Scientific and technical papers increasingly acknowledge that fossil fuel power dock is thermodynamically counterproductive. Yet those same papers fail to tackle the consequential question of whether renewable energy should be funneled to it rather than used to directly supply energy for buildings and transport. And the massive land requirements and biophysical impacts are largely ignored. Sierra and Lynchberger call for all existing subsidies for carbon removal systems, for EOR, which is effectively a subsidy for oil production, to be ended. No system that puts more CO2 into the atmosphere than it takes out should be getting state support, at the very least. As for DAC powered by renewables, they say that it should be discussed as a public service to meet a societal need, which is to achieve an absolute reduction in atmospheric CO2. They are skeptical that DAC can ever work at scale. The political question is whether industrial mechanical carbon renewable removal is a realistic option. Before any support is given to it, it should be analyzed according to its overall impact. The researchers argue that DAC and other industrial techniques need to be compared with biological methods of carbon removal, such as reforestation, that's planting trees, farming techniques, grasslands, and wetland uh, restoring that they propose, preliminary, will be more effective and efficient in energy and resources. Uh, So for social labor movements and all those concerned about climate change, their research must be taken seriously. Let's not be hypocritical. Technologies are not neutral. They work in social contexts. In contrast to biological methods, big industrial CDR will, for the foreseeable future at least, be controlled by big oil or by the state. These technologies are, by their nature, inimical, counterproductive to collective control or operation. We should therefore be wary, as trade unions for energy democracy are, of union bosses who support CCS, supposedly to protect jobs but actually to give a new lease of life to fossil fuel industry. And we should have serious, thoughtful discussions about the relationship of technological change and social change. All our efforts should be directed to changing the big technological systems that consume fossil fuels, urban transport, buildings, industry, so on, and reduce wasteful and unnecessary consumption. We should fight for existing technologies, preferably not preferably small-scale ones, change these systems as trade unionists and leads are doing, fight to accelerate the transition away from fossil fuels, and fight to unmask hypocritical climate emergencies that are a cover for an action. This author is Gabrielle Levy, a writer in the interest in socialism, ecology, and former Soviet countries, who blogs at People in Nature, where this article was first published. He has been active in the labor movement all his life. Uh, so, Michael, would you care to read, uh, do you have any of them up? I am pulling them up as we speak. Okay, so, read the other ecologist. Uh, so, same same publication, and now for that, like, what what are these social changes talked about? Like, what what's the big project? You know, what's the thing we really need to be planning for? We can't really plan around these structural contradictions of, you know, anything that industry comes up with is just going to use more energy at the end yeah. of the day, because... That's just what's profitable for them. New Critical Guide to Degrowth argues that we can improve people's lives by simply sharing what we already have more fairly and investing in public goods. 
Huh. So it's not you really would have thought. Yeah, so it's not like so so the whole like um hey, the people just want to like hey, the upside to all of that stuff I've read about was like we got to protect jobs. The whole like, you know, what about people's jobs, you know? Oh, green economy. This is uh, this is going to hurt people's jobs. You're yeah. thinking in terms of ne- of a zero sum game, yeah. A and B. We're socialists. We want a kind of uh, economic planning where people don't get go unemployed for long right. or at all. Not to mention that whether you have high employment or not, people actually get a basic income. You know, we're, yeah. which is something that most countries are doing, but the American government cannot. As Chapa would put it, yeah. Well, they can't. They can fathom it, but they do not want to set the precedent that the yeah. government can just give people money. That is, yeah. they cannot do that. The game is up. All the rhetoric from the last fifty years would be that's true rendered meaningless if they did it. So this is proving to be a remarkable year for all the worst reasons. First, we experienced Black Summer, the most severe season of fires in Australia's history. The 173 fatalities of the Black Saturday Australian bushfires on February 7, 2009, retains the record for most deaths. Then, Australia experienced floods. On one hand, a mercy after the drought and snuffing out the fires, but on the other hand, it brought on its own human and social destruction, pollution, and despair. This happened at the same time as the record-breaking three months of severe winter flooding in the United Kingdom. Meanwhile, the Antarctic endured an unprecedented heat wave. Brewing simultaneously was the public health and economic crisis of COVID-19 or coronavirus. Capitalocene, ah, which is a play on Anthropocene. Anthropocene. Which is, uh, we've covered before of the ecological Leninism yep. one, which actually didn't make a replacement term. Hmm. But just this point out, like, to, to use that term is to say, like, is to go into narratives, uh, fall into narratives of climate change is a humanity problem. It's something that just humanity naturally would do. And so the problem is humanity or it's human in nature. When but it really this is, is reframing it as, no, it's the problem is capitalism and right. the fact that currently our mode of production is centered around humans extracting resources yes. and value from everywhere. We have a supply-side economy. Yeah. It's the companies that pr- produce the pollution and the goods, and then we have to more or less buy it in order to stay employed. Right. So given half a chance, many of us would time travel to 2021 in a wink. Yet how quickly will we be free of these crises? In significant respects, these are unnatural disasters linked to the way we live in the capitalocene. Human activities have caused the rise in carbon emissions resulting in global warming and climate change. This means more intense Uh, extensive and unpredictable weather events due to the wider spectrum of temperatures endured in different places right across the planet. Consequentially, floods, fires, coastal inundation, melting ice, and sweltering weather threaten various populations, especially those in coastal cities. Such conditions also predispose us to pandemics such as COVID-19. Efforts to slow the spread and contain this coronavirus highlight the fragility of urban living, massive socioeconomic inequalities, 
of production for trade, a fragmented and globalized supply chain, and just-in-time supplies, all characteristics advanced by of, ad- of. of advanced cap. Indeed, it is substantially the totalizing economic effects that have dominated the perceived nature of the crisis. Response. Neoliberalism has led to under-resourced and overburdened health systems relying heavily on global supply chains that have fractured and warped as borders and workplaces close, colliding with urgent and massive demand. No crisis could so sharply throw into relief the fragility and precariousness of capitalist societies characterized by globalized production for trade and profits. Weak states led by bureaucratic elites and citizens experiencing uh, NAMI individuals Maybe it's ennui. It's not. It's not ennui. It's not how ennui is spelled. But maybe know. it's a n o m i e ennui. It's Australian. Maybe they spell uh, it differently. Individualism and alienation. But this is not a wholly new crisis. Rather, just a variation on an old capitalist crisis theme. Anti-capitalist post-growth and post-capitalist movements such as Occupy and Extinction Rebellion have made headlines in the last few decades in response to growing global economic, political, and social crises. Another such movement is degrowth. Degrowth is neither a familiar word nor a well-understood idea in English-speaking countries, such as the United Kingdom and the United States. So in 2019, we collaborated on writing Exploring Degrowth, a Critical Guide, Ligey and Nelson 2020. We wanted to promote the idea of degrowth and an understanding of the degrowth movement in the United or in the English-speaking world. Whoops. Given that degrowth evolved in Europe and has been mainly written about in other languages. Activism. Degrowth is often referred to as or as a provocative slogan. But, like defund the police. Yeah. <laughs> we should but stay it, away from those. <laughs> But it comprises a distinct line of thought that highlights the dynamic contradiction between productivist economic growth and Earth's material limits. The degrowth movement has flowered the panoply of collaborative experiments of living more with less. Think small is beautiful and small is necessary. Vincent Leige is an engineer, inter- interdisciplinary researcher, and teacher and has a wide-ranging knowledge of the development of degrowth as a theory and practice. A well-known spokesperson for the French degrowth movement, he is an active member of the Cargonomia, a center for research and experimentation on degrowth, a social cooperative for sustainable logistical solutions, and distributes local food using cargo bikes in Budapest. Which is, like, that last part is kind of the actual thing they're doing. <laughs> you know, because otherwise it's, like, a bunch of almost corporate jogging of, like, right. logistical solutions for the global economy. Oh, my God. Uh, but it's like, no, we're delivering food on cargo bikes. But it's really more of the discussion of the, like, models of doing it. That's why Anitra Nelson, an Australian degrowth advocate and Fireworks book series editor for Pluto Press London, approached him to be lead author of the short book on degrowth. This is far from the first book on degrowth to be published in English, but it is the first book to concentrate on degrowth activism in a singular way on degrowth as a movement. 
the quality. In the book, we explain how the theoretical founders of degrowth developed clear conclusions from analyzing how the limits of Earth's resources have been breached specifically by growth economies, thus the move to changing the ways we live, i.e. degrowth. The story of degrowth theory is populated with, the founder, or with founders who we would now refer to as activist scholars and became famous intellectuals, such as Ivan Illich who developed the degrowth concept of con conviviality, a cooperative, mutual, sociable, and sharing approach, sidelining experts and technocrats. Down with the bureaucrats. Degrowth might, at first glance, make you think of a movement involved with economics and economies. Think again. The first principle of degrowth is to address inequality. A driving philosophy in the politics of degrowth is autonomy, a la Cornelius Castronalis. Castronalis. Man, these words are just killing me. Well, that's a name, but I only know how to pronounce it because Zero Books has been discussing him for the uh, last month. Because he was kind of a non-Marxist or not anti, like a 60s interesting. postmodern kind of Marxist. Well, he considers agency and subsidiary central. Direct and local rule is particularly appropriate to building a society around frugal abundance, the only type of abundance that exists for the degrowth movement. But the degrowth movement is far from Puritan and instead convivial and celebratory. Frugal abundance is also referred to as happy sobriety and the enjoyment of life. Local. Like many other radical 21st century movements, the degrowth movement operates as an open, decentralized, and horizontal network. That means anarchism. Hell yeah. Particularly compatible with open relocalization, focusing on local production by locals exerting direct democracy or exercising direct democracy in ethical decision making over what is produced and how it is produced. Actual democracy. Yeah. In work and, and production, which is also also what socialism is. So, In this way, humans can nurture the earth as it nurtures us, all of which returns to the current health and economic crisis of COVID-19. If we had systems of production by locals for locals simply satisfying our basic needs, no more but no less, there would be few economic repercussions in applying social distancing and isolation to slow down and contain a global pandemic. We would live as collectively sufficiently as possible and self-organize to observe health-safe protocol in our modest livelihoods. The risk of pandemics would be lower too. Degrowth advocates using one's legs, or degrowth advocates using one's legs, bicycles, and to a small extent, public transportation. In contrast, the current coronavirus pandemic has clearly been spread much more rapidly due to travelers using airplanes and cruise ships. In short, another world is not only possible, but also preferable. Uh, These authors, uh, Anitra Nelson is an Australian activist scholar affiliated with a university in Melbourne. Vincent Leige is a spokesperson for the French degrowth movement. Mm, Much more developed there than it is here. And that's something that we're kind of working on. Because uh, even in, um, I think I covered this in like kind of an internal Green Party debate episode, that it was from the perspective that we need to be considering degrowth as part of our platform and our way of thinking. And that even Hawkins, Howie Hawkins and others were like, that's not going to fly. People are so built their worldview around jobs and job growth that similarly, 
to a slogan like defund the police, very provocative. What are people, what do you mean by that? That's scary. I don't understand. And then you'll get plenty of counter blows from supposed leaders like Obama saying, oh, you're going to lose people using language like that, degrowth. But as I've explained over and over again with this in this program, when it comes to fixing slash mitigating the harm of climate change, there's no other way. We have to degrow the economy. We can't not only keep growing the economy, even if we didn't grow at all, we would still be raising the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere, accelerating the amount of climate chaos. Now, it seems like a really big ask, not only that, but the project itself may feel overwhelming. But as the anarchists at Crime Bank would point out, to change everything, start anywhere. So let's go with the last piece of the hour. Yes, we have third piece now as part of this trio. It is a piece from The Guardian, so a bit more mainstream, of course. And it's just about one particular industry. So you could you can work on, the, you know, a movement can pick its targets strategically. And some industries might be more unpopular or less necessary than others. So, Michael, what uh, what kind of industries might uh, come to mind when it comes to, like, what do we really need to exist uh, currently or in the future? Food, shelter. Um, Maybe some luxuries like entertainment. Yeah. What we don't need is advertising. No. God, no. Yes. So everyone is, you know, it, it, but... I don't need someone selling me and trying to convince me to buy all sorts of things that I don't need. Yeah, and I think there needs to be a distinction between advertising and outreach. You mm. know, when a restaurant puts a big sign on their building, is that an advertisement or is it simply just decoration saying, this is a restaurant, come eat here? Hmm. Or it's an out, it's outreach, you know, or posters for a political party, you know, is it advertising or is it outreach? Um, I think there needs to be some kind of distinction made between all of the pop-up ads online and the newspaper and advertising there and, say, the underwriting here at the uh, community radio station. Right. Where it's more about actually informing, which was kind of like original advertising was like, let me just tell you about the product. Let me tell you about what we're selling so you know we're selling it, that it's out there, that it's that we exist, so you know about us and can be customers. So at some point, there is a kind of minimum level of outreach or advertising that should exist. In fact, morally should exist uh, in a community uh, that, is, that is beyond word of mouth, but as many would say, word of mouth and personal recommendation is actually the best type of advertising. When it comes to political campaigns, radio, TV ads are actually very ineffective whatsoever and a big waste of money. But billions and billions are spent anyway. But a report advises, um, by some climate scientists as well, that we should rein in advertising to help tackle climate change. So this isn't from the radical degrowth perspective, but just a where we start, how can we push people, move the Overton window kind of stuff. Industry promotes materialism and lifts sales of climate-harming products. So it's really just, this is coming at it like really simple, right? But simple is good, especially for like getting it across and growing the mindset of this this possible, probable, necessary degrowth movement. Advertising needs to be controlled and changed to reduce its impact on the climate, according to a report released as consumers prepare to spend billions on Black Friday. 
The report by the New Weather Institute think tank and the charity We Are Possible examines how advertising indirectly contributes to climate change and ecological emergency. Researchers say the promotion of consumerism, materialism, as we know them, and a work and spend cycle and the industry's role in pushing sales of beef, tobacco, and high-polluting SUVs, flying, travel, and all part is all part of this indirect role. Could say it's essential. The report says that advertising industry has so far escaped scrutiny about its role in contributing to climate change. Tim Crasser, or Casser, an emeritus professor of psychology at Knox College in Illinois, who co-authored the report, said that there was a body of evidence to show that in order to make progress in addressing and reversing climate and ecological degradation, which means nothing things up, it would be prudent to rein in and change the practices of the advertising industry. So not banning it or getting rid of it. This is pretty reformist as far as tone. Um, but I, I'm for banning certain types of advertising. I mean, there are cities like in Cordoba in Brazil, they banned outdoor billboards. You know, no outdoor, or, or rather, or no, it went beyond that. It was outdoor advertising. Uh, all outdoor advertising was banned. So you have a lot of empty billboards that will then turn into murals and stuff. Let's see, a city in France, because these were publicly owned uh, kind of sign, the signs on the side of bus shelters, those were, they, they ended that contract. Mm. So they stopped selling that space. Um, and now uh, they replaced it with public art. And, uh, and maybe even some bulletin boards. But that's, that's what would, like, what would you replace all this public space with? Uh, nature. Things that, um, psychically benefit us instead of polluting our minds. Uh, because advertising is also a type of pollution. It's mental pollution. It's visual pollution, as uh, some have called it. Visual pollution. This report argues that enough sound empirical evidence exists to support the conclusion that the advertising industry indirectly contributes to climate and ecological degradation through its encouragement of materialistic values and goals, a consumption-driving work and spend cycle, and the consumption of two illustrated products, particularly looking at beef and tobacco. Researchers examined general, several studies linking exposure to advertising, with increased materialism. Duh. They say such exposure heightens the priority of people place on materialistic values and goals and is associated with negative ecological attitudes and unsustainable behaviors. The desire to work longer hours in order to consume more is also laid at the door of advertising. Advertising leads people to place higher value on consumption of what they see advertised and a lower value on having more time available for non-work or nature. The industry also encourages the purchase of products that have a negative impact, like beef and tobacco and many other things. Numerous studies make it clear that raising cattle for beef relies on unsustainable water usage. If you didn't know, beef is very unsustainable. It uses massive amounts of resources. If you must be a carnivore, eat chicken and even pork is slightly better than beef, but of course nothing beats actually going vegetarian. Tobacco production has also a direct impact on the environment. Each stage in the life cycle of a cigarette, from growing the tobacco to manufacturing the cigarette, etc., etc., it's deforestation, it's chemical pollution of water, and all kinds of emissions along the way, like any industry, really. 
truly the only solution is to actually degrow to industries that we actually need or actually desire. Because when it comes to certain products, a lot of it is addictive on purpose, like tobacco or nicotine particularly. Or again, it's sold to us as something that we need when we really don't. Would you be convinced that you need it if there wasn't the advertising? If you're so sure that you would still eat lots of beef or steak every meal day without the advertising, let's find out. Let's limit advertising. Not matter what, but just how much. I'm sure that would be very popular. But there needs to be a movement for it. There needs to be a call to say, this is something we're actually going to be against. We're going to be buzzkills about this. <laughs> we're going to oppose this. Oppose advertising. And it can involve direct action and sabotaging advertisements outdoors. It's not like people don't graffiti billboards all the time anyway. Yeah, go ahead. So I, I'm calling for crime, I guess. I'm, it's hypothetical. Well, in my personal crusade against advertisers, I have been marking just about every advertisement I see on my phone as being sexually inappropriate. I do that sometimes, too. Though and, not to every advertisement, but only because I only see them when I'm on my phone, when I'm online on my computers, which is when I do all of most of my stuff. Um, I've got all the ad blockers on, and I'm just kind uh, of tuning, yeah. it, tuning it out, as it were, technologically speaking. Can't do that in real world, uh, sort of, but that's kind of... But it's really of, convenient to have, like an unskippable ad on YouTube, and I'm like, I don't want to see this. So I just report it as being sexually inappropriate, yeah. and then I don't have to watch the end of the ad. It's pretty great. Yeah. This is similar to a story I did earlier in the year about the movement about degrowing flying, less flying, no more airport expansions. Right. Um, this is a similar thing. People aren't thinking about what we can really be fighting. Sometimes when it comes to environmentalism, it's like, oh, we, it's only legitimate activism if it's really about a particular development destroying owl habitat or a particular plant that is literally burning toxic foam. Hmm. You know, like that you can rally people around. Right. But when it comes to the things that are considered normal, everyday things that are really shouldn't be. Ah, uh, yeah. That's where. Yeah, you're a radical activist now if you feel this is something we need to work on or oppose. And there's and there's a tension or a fear that like your peers will consider you to be overblown, overzealous. Yes, uh like uh, say you're in your Girl Scout troop and you don't want to do the police union gala or don't right. to that. Yeah. And like you go to get some hay for that. But hey, you gotta stick your neck out. Um, hopefully not just get it chopped off. But yeah, the nail sticking up gets hammered, but the squeaky wheel also gets the grease, blah, blah, blah. Yep. Kaiser Kasser said the correlation between the advertising of tobacco and its consumption was strong enough to have led the World Health Organization to call for a comprehensive ban on tobacco advertising to reduce its consumption. Stephen Woodward, chief executive for the Advertising Association, dun, 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 said banning advertising of certain parts of the economy is not the answer. Applying pressure on systemic change in the way an industry operates is, and recognizing that advertising itself will make the best contribution to climate action by helping promoting these critical changes to people and encourage rapid behavioral change. So he's saying, advertising is just a tool. 
You can use it to control people to buy nicotine, and you can use it to get people to recycle. As if recycling campaigns have the budget for that kind of advertising, right? right? That's so liberal. It's extremely liberal. Uh, whole, like, you know, advertising is a necessary, almost a necessary industry, like growing food. And the, the systemic change comes from the industries themselves. But we as an industry don't count because we're like, we, we're part of, we're helping you guys by allowing you the uh, opportunity to pay your millions of dollars that you totally have to also mind control the population or influence influence is the word to influence your fellow citizens right. in our so-called democracy at the same time uh and this is still quoting mr uh, woodford at the same time our own industry needs to make sure its operations have a real net zero impact which is why we have launched add net zero to reduce the carbon impact of the development production and distribution of advertising to real net zero by the end of 2030. This includes the goal of encouraging advertisers and agencies to measure the carbon impact of their campaigns, which is a good and proven first step towards reduction. Now, sounds reasonable enough. Sounds very reasonable, in fact, very rational, very adult. Um, But it's also, this is coming from an advertising association rep, I think some bunk is is uh, kind of present there. Also that, like, basically saying, leave it up to us to self-regulate. So it's just another free market uh, pitch. So, yeah, so the last few minutes of the hour. Um, I just want to wish you from uh, these two, uh, we're not a jewish theme show, but happy Hanukkah uh, from us two Jews. Chag Sameach. Shabbat Shalom. Oh, yeah, and Shabbat Shalom. So we do the show on Sabbath every week. I don't make a yeah, thing of it. We're bad Jews. We're, we're not observant. We're not, a, we're not observant Jews. No, this doesn't work. Uh, though we're, we're pushing buttons and all that things, but that's we're, true. We're and not, I am driving, but we're not ascetic. So I'm not, there's a reason reform Judaism. Uh, yeah. Oh, exists. I gotta say when I went to Israel and mm-hmm. I was in a hotel last year, for last Ber- year. and you were part of birthright Zionist pig. Yes. Yes. Well, I was in Israel I that last me. week. Or not last last year, and I was uh, there on Shabbat, and it was weird because some of the elevators, like on Shabbat, would just be constant. And yeah. it's cool that they like have made their society so that it is possible to not work on Sabbath, not press the buttons, not use things, not interact with things, and you can still like get by, and they accommodate that. That's kind of neat. Sometimes it's it's the point of silliness because yeah, it true. comes down like the button rule. Okay, so for the back to back up, uh, when you're really hyper religious in, in Jew, uh, hyper religious Jew, you consider you take not working on the Sabbath to be very literal. And of course, this goes back to medieval, not the medieval, but um, two hundred year old scholarly debates about what constitutes work. Right, driving a car constitutes work. Pushing buttons and interacting with electricity. Tearing paper also constitutes work, which is why all of the toilet paper in Israel is sort of in like big tissue uh, tissue boxes. They're like tissue boxes. So like the individual, yeah, the individual pieces of toilet paper are not connected to each other. They're yes. individual sheets, now, so you don't yes. have to expel work in order to tear them. So this is, is all neat. to accommodate, not so much like 
it is part of the religious belief, but the belief is based on an argument that was made that these things constitute work. Right. And so it's all this accommodation that seems kind of fruitless, especially when like you actually have to put in a lot of effort to follow these rules. Uh, one of my favorite loopholes is um, Right, and then and many themselves create loopholes yeah. to get around these yep. things. Similar to how the Israeli occupation isn't really an occupation because of right. reasons X, Y, and Z. So one of my favorite loopholes is that um lighting uh, a match is considered work. Right. Uh, creating fire is considered work. And one of the most or important parts of Shabbat is lighting the Shabbat candles. Right. And they get around the fact that you're not allowed to create a fire on Shabbat by saying, oh, no, when you strike the match, it is not Shabbat yet. But then once you use the match to light the candles, yes. then it is Shabbat. Yes. And Shabbat only begins. the candle yes. is the last piece of work that you do for the entire week. Or usually um, you light the candles before sundown because right. Shabbat starts at sundown. So it's good to know exactly when sundown starts and then you just yeah. you know, work around it that way. Um, but yeah, that's that's a particular sect of Jews, uh, Hasidium and other sects the like that. The Orthodox. Um, which are the ones that grow out their hair and all the follow, and, you know, like any other kind of religious zealot to me. Um but sometimes they're very nice and kind and so on. And we do we don't have Jewish restaurants here in Albany. I learned this as I'm doing a segment for the Hudson Mohawk magazine. Plug for um Sanctuary for Independent Media. And uh you know, I'm doing what are we doing for Hanukkah? You know, so what are you doing for Hanukkah, Michael? Well, I um on Thursday I went to my parents' new house and uh, my step, some of my step siblings came to visit. My stepbrother's girlfriend came to visit, and we had latkes and smoked a bit and mm-hmm. celebrated. Generally, I got some cash as a Hanukkah present, which I'm grateful for. And I'm going to finish celebrating Shabbat by right after this show. I am going to go buy some streaming equipment. I'm getting a. I have saved a good chunk of money, and I'm going to buy a desktop, uh, my own microphone, my own... The next Vosh, babe. You're going to be yeah, the next I'm, Vosh. I'm, that, You're totally going to replace him. I I'm going to try to be like the... Like, I'm gonna, I want to be Vosh, but with less bad takes. That's that's kind of my <laughs> More goal. good takes. More good More taste. good takes. And taste. And taste. Yes. And less cr- uh, cringe, less, cringe. less edge. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Different audience, or at least a better one. I'm looking forward to wearing my weed leaf keeper on stream. Yes. All right. Uh, okay, and, and I'm doing similar things. Uh, tonight I'm having a little get-together, watching the Hebrew Hammer, making lankas and kugel, uh, and kugel. a little a little fried chicken, which is a very rare treat, because, uh, you know, I only buy meat, like, once a year, this is it, you know? Oh, wow. Or I usually never buy meat, but I, I kind of gave in and just, like... I'm going to make some tenders. Just nice. some tenders. You Ooh, know. I love me some tenders. Okay. On to the next thing. And that's the hour. Thank you. I'm a modern man, a man for the millennium, digital and smoke-free, a diversified multicultural postmodern deconstructionist, politically, anatomically, and ecologically incorrect. Yeah. 
I've been uplinked and downloaded, I've been inputted and outsourced, I know the upside of downsizing, I know the downside of upgrading. I'm a high-tech lowlife, a cutting-edge, state-of-the-art, bi-coastal multitasker, and I can give you a gigabyte in a nanosecond. I'm new wave, but I'm old school, and my inner child is outward bound. I'm a hot-wired, heat-seeking, warm-hearted, cool customer, voice-activated and biodegradable. I interface with my database, my database is in cyberspace, so I'm interactive, I'm hyperactive, and from time to time, I'm radioactive. Behind the eight ball, ahead of the curve, riding the wave, dodging the bullet, pushing the envelope. I'm on point, on task, on message, and off drugs. I got no need for coke and speed. I got no urge to binge and purge. I'm in the moment, on the edge, over the top, but under the radar. A high-concept, low-profile, medium-range ballistic missionary. A streetwise smart bomb. A top-gun bottom feeder. I wear power ties, I tell power lies, I take power naps, I run victory laps. I'm a totally ongoing, bigfoot, slam-dunk rainmaker with a proactive outreach. A raging workaholic. A working rageaholic out of rehab and in denial. I got a personal trainer, a personal shopper, a personal assistant, and a personal agenda. You can't shut me up, you can't dumb me down, because I'm tireless and I'm wireless. I'm an alpha male on beta blockers. I'm a non-believer and an overachiever, laid back but fashion forward, up front, down home, low rent, high maintenance, supersized, long-lasting, high-definition, fast-acting, oven-ready, and built to last. I'm a hands-on, foot-loose, knee-jerk, head case, prematurely post-traumatic, and I have a love child who sends me hate mail. But I'm feeling, I'm caring, I'm healing, I'm sharing. A supportive, bonding, nurturing primary caregiver. My output is down, but my income is up. I take a short position on the long bond, and my revenue stream has its own cash flow. I read junk mail, I eat junk food, I buy junk bonds, I watch trash sports. I'm gender-specific, capital-intensive, user-friendly, and lactose-intolerant. I like rough sex. I like tough love. I use the F word in my email, and the software on my hard drive is hardcore, no soft porn. I bought a microwave at a mini mall. I bought a minivan at a megastore. I eat fast food in the slow lane. I'm toll-free, bite-sized, ready to wear, and I come in all sizes. A fully equipped, factory-authorized, hospital-tested, clinically proven, scientifically formulated medical miracle. I've been pre-washed, pre-cooked, pre-heated, pre-screened, pre-approved, pre-packaged, post-dated, freeze-dried, double-wrapped, vacuum-packed, and I have an unlimited broadband capacity. I'm a rude dude, but I'm the real deal. Lean and mean, cocked, locked, and ready to rock. Rough, tough, and hard to bluff. I take it slow, I go with the flow, I ride with the tide, I got glide in my stride. Driving and moving, sailing and spinning, jiving and grooving, wailing and winning. I don't snooze, so I don't lose. I keep the pedal to the metal and the rubber on the road. I party hardy, and lunchtime is crunch time. I'm hanging in, there ain't no doubt, and I'm hanging tough over and out.
And welcome back to the Three Left Show. This program brings you leftist analysis, talk, and projects from radical and revolutionary perspective. Um, reading articles to bring you more uh, broaden your perspectives and your mind space and all that jazz. Uh, we are talking ecology, uh, doing an ecology episode, uh, finally, right? Yeah, finally. Um, I really enjoy these because it's, it's, it really crystallizes things down into uh, just like, this is good, this is bad, or it's, it kind of simplifies like what works because you can see very clearly from the math, let's say, or the facts and from and from people's experiences what works and what doesn't. Uh, unlike, say, in organizing spaces where it's really unclear what is effective and what is kind of what's working long term. I think when it comes to nature, you can look at deforestation or reforestation and the like, um, gardening projects, and just say, yeah, this is cool, this is working. Uh, what, What is this about? Oh, no, no, okay, this is also published from The Guardian. So many of my environmental stories come from The Guardian. I don't know why. I guess they just have good, they have a good section. And this is uh, written by an Amy Fleming, and it's called The Case for Making Low-Tech Dumb Cities Instead of Smart Ones. Hmm. So have you ever heard of smart cities? Yeah. Every liberal city wants to be a smart city, yep. um, which includes bumping up budgets for IT servers, uh, technology, instead of investing in anti-poverty programs and right. like. It's kind of a way of let's study poverty instead of just helping poor people. High-tech smart cities promise efficiency by monitoring everything from bins to bridges. Total police state. No, that's not, that's not the makings of a police state. But what if we ditched the data and embraced ancient technology instead? Hmm. And I have someone who has taken a course in sustainable infrastructure, in which most of it was just looking at ancient models. Right. Ever since smartphones hooked us with their limitless possibilities and dopamine hits, mayors and city bureaucrats can't get enough of the notion of smart washing their cities. Similar to greenwashing. Yep. It makes them sound dynamic and attractive to business. What's not to love about WizKids streamlining your responsibilities for running services, optimizing efficiency, and keeping citizens safe into a bunch of fun apps? Hmm. Never mind reality. Uh, there's no concrete definition of a smart city, but high-tech versions promise to use cameras and sensors to monitor everyone and everything from bins to bridges and use the resulting data to help the city run smoothly. One high-profile proposal by Google's sister company, Sidewalk Labs, to give 12 acres of Toronto a smart makeover is facing a massive backlash. In September 2019, an independent report called the plans frustratingly abstract in turn, U.S. tech investor Roger McNamee warned Google can't be trusted with such data, calling the project surveillance capitalism. Hmm. Perfect. Perfect title. Yeah. There are practical considerations, too, as uh, Shoshana Sachs of the University of Toronto has highlighted. Smart cities, she wrote in the New York Times uh, last year, will be exceedingly complex to manage with all sorts of unpredictable vulnerabilities. That's the drawback of complexity. The more complex you make something, the more points of vulnerability it has. Yep. Regular sword of Damocles. Tech products age fast. What happens when the sensors fail? Can cities afford expensive new teams of tech staff, as well as keeping the ground workers there still need? If smart data identifies a road that needs paving, she writes, it still needs for people to show up with asphalt and a steamroller. 
And that's kind of the shift of our, of even our cities, uh, in Albany, where, you know, we're, we're focusing on data and data collection. And we are still funding, you know, our robust, uh, general services staff. Right. Uh, trash collectors and the like. But there's still this kind of pressure to automate, mm-hmm. you know, the garbage collection, you know, or something like that. But it's also, in our older city, completely impractical. So there's these contradictions of like what the Fed, federal government will like, or what companies will fund, hmm. what kind of companies are offering, what kind of services for the cities to buy. And yeah, but what, yeah, but what really is available is what community groups are doing. So cities just need to directly fund them instead of through grants with a little, lot of little strings attached. Right. Um, and like, you need to prove you're producing value. Sachs Piffley calls for redirecting some of our energy towards building excellent dumb cities. She's not anti-technology. No one else really is, uh, unless you're real Amprim. But, uh, it's not, it's just that she thinks smart cities may be unnecessary. For many of our challenges, we don't need new technologies or new ideas. We need the will, foresight, and courage to use the best of the old ideas, she says. Hmm. Thus, this article weaves in very finely with uh, the degrowth movement. Okay. You know, it's really the same narrative here. We don't need more tech. We don't need more of this stuff to be more efficient. We can just actually do less, and then we'll we'll be more efficient. Sachs is right. In fact, she could go further. There's old, and then there's old. And for urban landscapes, increasingly vulnerable to floods, adverse weather, carbon overload choking pollution, and an unhealthy disconnect between humans and nature, not to mention humans and other humans. Right. There's a strong case for looking beyond old technologies to ancient ones. It is eminently possible to weave ancient technology of how we live symbolically with nature into, or symbiotically with nature, how we shape the cities of the future before this wisdom is lost. We can rewild our urban landscapes and apply low-tech eco-solutions to drain wastewater, uh, and process it, flood survival, local agriculture, so on, so on. This is the kind of work that indigenous peoples have done for thousands of years with no need for electronic sensors, computer servers, or extra IT support. Oh, no, but all those coding degrees will go to waste. <laughs> Julia Watson, a lecturer in urban design at Harvard and Columbia, recently launched her book, Low Tech, Designed by Radical Indigenism, with publisher Taction. It's the result of more than 20 years of traveling to research the original smart settlements through an architect's lens. Something that I kind of did in school a little bit as well. Okay. Not the traveling, but the books. Right. She visited the Mondon people in Iraq who weave buildings and floating islands from reeds. This was also done in Mesoamerica. The Zuni people in New Mexico who create waffle gardens to capture, store, and manipulate water for desert crop farming. And the Subak rice terraces of Bali. Watson walked the living tree root bridges that can withstand adverse weather better than any human-made structure and that allow the Kasai Hill Tribe in northern India to travel between villages during monsoon floods. There are just so many different ways you can rewild cities, says Watson, and it's not just a case for plonking an ancient system in a city, but rather adapting a complex ecosystem for different types of places and their own requirements. Take a current proposal she's working on for the high-rise city of Shenzhen, on the Pearl River estuary by Hong Kong. Hmm. It was once a fishing village, then a textile town, and it just skyrocketed. 
All the fish ponds and polars and dikes and wetlands that absorb all the water in the delta landscape are being erased. So the city is developing in a way that's erasing the indigenous resilience in the landscape. By the way, Shenzhen is a city that's roughly the size of New York City. Oh, wow. Or I don't know the exact population, but it's big. Uh, look at a picture. It's a very dense city. You don't have to erase to go forward, she says. You can leapfrog and embed local intelligence using a nature-based traditional Chinese technology. Oh, ancient Chinese secret. <laughs> Stupid. It's really human technology. Uh, that's climate resilient, ecologically resilient, uh, cultur culturally too. And we can make beautiful urban spaces as well. As an architect, she needs to make that pitch. Kong Zhang Yu, a design professor at Peking University, why is it still called that, agrees with this philosophy. Known as the sponge cities architect, Yu creates urban landscapes in China that passively absorb rainwater using permeable pavements, green roofs, terraced wetland parks that flood during monsoon. Now here in America, uh, instead of mass urban planning with the money to back it up, certain large metropolitan areas can kind of do this stuff. Here in smaller cities, it's all really kind of hapdash. The city itself can, on public land, like the parks, do some water storage there to reduce the flooding that happens downtown. Uh, would happen and has happened in the last 10 years. During, you know, we've had flash floods and stuff more than we've ever had before. Uh, no, but when it comes to like getting green roofs on buildings, it's like it becomes a game of incentives and complex zoning uh, rules yeah. and again, more complexity is is bad now we change our zoning code it's a bit simpler but it's not quite doesn't allow for autonomy that much anyway the parks have brought fish and birds back to the cities and people love it let's skip ahead a little uh to what copenhagen has done they've opted for a dumb or local planners call it a green and blue solution to their increasing flood risks namely a series of parks that become lakes during storms the city hmm. estimated that they would cost a third less than building levees and new sewers and come with the added ecological benefit of rewilding. An abandoned military site was cleaned up in 2010 and rewilded wilded into a nature reserve and common for grazing animals. The Amager Nature Center, a vast park, with not only happy people meandering and cycling, but, but also insects and all the wildlife. Such a abandoned military site is also the um, place for Chrislandia, one of those anarchists. Oh, I've heard of that. Autonomous zone. Semi-autonomous, really. It's still kind of... It's been transitioned over the years. But dumb cities can even be smarter than that. Not only can functioning wetlands defend cities against floods and restore nature, they can also clean wastewater. Thus, you don't need big, energy-intensive wastewater plants. Hmm. And they can do it more efficiently than sewage treatment works, all while absorbing a whole lot of carbon... Nitrogen, sulfur, you know, the, the nasty smells. And creating a fishing industry and fertile farmland. Uh, because scat in water is good uh, fish food. The world's largest system, which is built in Kokola in India, involves the city's sewage feeding the fish. It saves the city about $22 million a year in running costs for the a waste treatment plant. The water can be used for irrigation, saving a further... Yes, half million pounds in water and fertilizer costs. Because uh, they, use, they use the pound. Ah. And it enables much of the city's food to be governed locally. Uh, grown locally. Or, as waters rise globally, we can learn from Makio, the incredible city on stilts in Lagos. That's Nigeria. 
that is home to 80,000 residents. Its floating schools, sustainable and solar-fueled, has captured the world's imagination. Rotterdam has already introduced a floating forest and farm, and is developing plans for a sustainable floating city. As for dump transport, there can be no doubt that walking or cycling are superior to car travel over short urban distances. No pollution, no emissions, free exercise. And when you take the cycling, uh, stationary cycles, and they're moved outside for COVID restrictions, yeah. there's a joke of like, they're just a little bit more to an epiphany that they could be cycling just outside on real, real bicycles. That's funny. But they need to demand bicycle infrastructure then. Yeah. But hey, we do need to do that. There's the dumb solution to spread of air conditioning, one of the greatest urban energy guzzlers, more plants. A study in Madison, Wisconsin, found that urban temperatures can be 5% cooler with 40% more tree cover. This is to mitigate what is called the heat island effect uh, in urban areas, where you cities are 5 to 10 degrees hotter because of the absorption of heat by concrete, concrete yeah, yeah. and everything else and asphalt yeah. you know you can fry an egg on this asphalt if you depave all those parking lots and have tree cover instead and forests it you know it, you don't need as much air conditioning right. because it's not 90 degrees it's 80 degrees right literally uh or you could just think like a bug Architects are mimicking the natural cooling airflows of termite burrows. I've seen this. Yes. And technically, architecture has been doing this throughout all of human history. And by human history, I just don't mean 6,000 years ago. I mean 100,000 years right. ago. But even even just going six, 2,000 years ago, in arid or warmer climates, buildings or houses have a stack effect happening where hmm. basically hot air gets pulled out of the house by having a chimney or some kind of flue or a courtyard. Okay. Um, Roman houses, you know, or any any type of housing typology that has a courtyard. It's because you have a piece of water, you have a, body, a little pool or a fountain of water in the middle, and hot air gets pulled towards the fountain, and then it goes up because it's, you know, no roof. Hmm. So that's why those things were built that way. And, yes, most urban housing can't do that, but it needs... There, there are ways of doing it where you can do a stack effect, and I've been looking at all of that. Hmm. And it doesn't, and it's not expensive, and it basically you don't need. Well, that's uh, green roofs with high vegetation density can cool buildings up to sixty percent. A few token green walls and trees won't do it though. Watson calls for a focus on so that's usual greenwashing is oh look at our nice green wall or uh, we we put a green roof but it's for this uh, slip of eight feet wide. Hmm. Uh, which which certain Stark attacks have done on on school buildings and stuff. It's just not that's greenwashing. No, we call for a focus on permaculture, self-sustaining ecosystems. If it's an urban forest, he says, perhaps it's in the center of the city, perhaps it's on the periphery, or it could be an interior environment, an atrium designed to have a complex ecosystem in it. There are hundreds of nature-based technologies that have never been explored. For example. Watson envisions stunning urban uses for the living root bridges of the Kasai Hill Tribe. They could be grown to reduce the urban heat island effect by increasing canopy cover along streets with roots trained into trusses that integrate with the architecture of the street, in essence, removing the distinction between tree and building. They could even retain their original use during seasonal floods. 
living physical bridges over the water. In April 2019, Greta Thunberg and Guardian columnist George Monderbot made a rallying video calling for more trees and wetlands and plant cover to tackle the climate crisis. Cities can be part of this push. No, not spending $50 billion on Elon Musk's newest frickin' scheme. Uh, anyway. Oh, Elon. The idea of smart cities is born of what Watson describes as the same human superiority complex that thinks nature should be controlled. What's missing is symbiosis. Life on Earth is based on this. She suggests we replace the saying survival of the fittest with survival of the most symbiotic. Not as catchy, perhaps, but smarter. Now, uh, as leftists, we have the term mutual aid, um, a factor of survival, and solidarity. So permaculture was mentioned once in that article. Now the next piece is just about permaculture to explore that. And it is, in fact, you know, it under, it's we described with the Decroft article, small is beautiful, small is necessary, small community projects, maybe they federalize, form a commons economy. How would that occur? What kind of dual power does it build? What would it take for it? Or how big would it need to be before it needs to challenge the current government? Or how long before the current government does things to stamp it out or prevent it from growing? Well, in some ways, they're always working against these things. But sometimes they'll hold them up and say, oh, look at this nice community garden. Look at how they're filling the need that we obviously cannot be lift a finger to do anything about. Because we're the government and we decided 50 years ago that we're going to be hands off. Or that government is bad and everyone who mattered agreed. Uh, would you like to help read this one? So this is from Permaculture for the People. This is their a specific, you know, site. And they have, you know, all, all the kind of guides there and stuff. And uh, so this is called Permaculture on the Edge, Building an Anti-Despite Post-Capitalist Movement. So permaculture itself is really just a set of gardening practices that use all the ecological thinking and, and say, you know, natural technologies to increase your efficiency in gardening, and, it's, and it can be used as part of architecture to reduce heating and cooling expenses and energy used by using nature, the sun, so on, so on. Passive stuff, passive instead of active, that costs money. But like um, most things that kind of start out as either radical or have a radical potential, right, because the thinking logically is itself to resist capitalist values of materialism and the spend, earn money to spend money economic cycle. Because you, by doing permaculture, you're getting out of that. Or could it be co-opted? Technically, I think anything is co-optable. Things that you would think could never be co-optable. Things like um, subcultures, like um, punk punk subcultures. You know, surely punk with its aesthetic and an f, you know, and, and that and its culture and its affectations could never be commercialized. It's all about being marginal and uh, to hell with you know commodification. And I'm not gonna sell out. But then you got Johnny Rotten wearing a Trump T-shirt, you know, and, uh, and and Hot Topic exists. So 
our economic system is very good at kind of pulling things into its orbit. And permaculture is may not be immune to it, though I've spent the last decade trying to search for either a subculture or something that resists this or is it's it won't it's not co-optable. To me, certain political structures like the Green Party or socialist stuff isn't co-optable because the system really does want nothing to do with it. And historically speaking, you know what isn't co-optable in what the system has crushed. You know, it was not going to be able to ever co-opt a revolutionary movement that calls itself a communist or whatever. The stuff that it actually fights, you know, and usually it fights it after it maybe tried to buy them out or sell out or right. co-opt, but couldn't or didn't. So here are some thoughts, um, kind of long, but this is published uh, by uh, Rebecca Ellis, a community activist and PhD student. She's almost done. She also keeps bees. Okay, so maybe you could read it while I, um, yep, I got it. to get things, get it up on my end. Permaculture is a philosophy and set of practices aimed at creating regenerative human spaces that mimic natural ecosystems. The concept was developed by two Australians, Bill Mollison and David Holmgren, in the 1970s based on their observations of the ec ecological systems created by indigenous and traditional communities around the world. The philosophy of permaculture offers a counter-hegemonic worldview, especially regarding the place of human societies within nature. While permaculture can be thought of as a movement, some of its pro uh, proponents insist it stay depoliticized and professionalized as a system of ecological design. Indeed, some of the practices of permaculture limit its potential to grow as a movement, thereby also limiting its effectiveness as a vehicle and or fur and model of change. I believe that permaculture proponents need to move away from promoting permaculture as primarily a set of ecological design practices and principles. Instead, it must be built as a dynamic social movement that provides a vision for radical transformation of human societies. In doing so, the permaculture movement must concern itself with social and environmental justice. In other words, why are you making this political? <laughs> actively resisting racism, colonialism, classism, and sexism. The permaculture movement must find ways to become an accessible and participatory movement with a strong following in diverse urban neighborhoods. The emphasis on land ownership and entrepreneurship must be replaced with collective action and creation of anti-slash-beyond-slash-despite-capitalist commons. Now, despite this call in the gardening organization that I've volunteered with, um, there's actually a guy who, like these permaculture people, and they're pretty much apolitical in their views, if not moderate, or at least standard liberals, like, I like Hillary. And <laughs> it, was a, it was a kind of, not a turn off from working with them entirely, they're very good, and the guy makes jam. But, but just the whole, like, I want this to be politicized, right. but it's a nonprofit and it has a state grant. And it's basically like, this is, this isn't, is this what the co like it's already happening. The co-option of permaculture right. is like, it's the only, these, these projects are, unless they're completely grassroots, they're going to be state programs right. or, or public, or they're going to be incentivized to be non-political 
not do anything political, mm-hmm. active. And the people involved with them coming from the nonprofit sector are kind of part of that culture of never making anything political. Right. Radical potential of permaculture. Humans currently face an unprecedented level of crisis, including widespread environmental destruction, human-caused climate change, and the continued threat of nuclear war and poverty and famine. Lots of things. You can probably skip this paragraph since we've kind of covered Mm. the content of it. Critiques of permaculture. Although permaculture has the potential to contribute to transformative social or societal change, this potential is weakened by its focus on professionalization, land ownership, and entrepreneurship, which tends to reinforce sexism, racism, and class bigotry, and to commodify practices, skills, and knowledges that should be uncommodifiable. Big the- claim, but let's... Uh, so this article explores each of those three things in tandem, so it is... It's longer in that way. So a session of decolonializing permaculture, building resilient communities, convergence in California. There was these workshops, and these are kind of the ideas that they uh, bounced around. So let's skip ahead to the um, title, Exclusionary. Lack of access to land is often raised as a barrier to participation in permaculture. Land ownership in North America, both rural and urban, is prohibitively expensive for many people, but many permaculture practices are based on land ownership, including the creation of perennial gardens, the growth of food forests, major earth workshops such as berms and swalls, and the building cob structures. Cob is like um, packed earth. Ah. While these projects are possible as community initiatives on public or communal land, to create community projects like these requires highly developed organizing skills, something in which few people are trained or experienced. In urban centers where public land can be highly contested, the creation of these projects often requires sustained activist campaigns that are grounded in an understanding of the complex connections between urban land and race, class, and gender. That's what I mean by people who kind of are already in the nonprofit industrial complex. Right. These are the people with the such experience. Permaculture practitioners do not just focus on building projects in their own communities. Some set up businesses and farms in the global south. There is a danger that these international permaculture initiatives can contribute to the dispossession of local people. Issue 4 on the North American edition of Permaculture magazine included an article that celebrates market-driven restoration as a type of permaculture entrepreneurship. Isn't that a lot of buzzwords there? Yeah. You got entrepreneurship, you got market-driven. Yeah. This article focuses on a for-profit business in Paraguay owned by two white American men that brands Yerba Mate as a superfood to North American consumers. As white it's all 2013. It's the next quinoa. Point out the application of the market paradigm to the environment, market environmentalism, has become an important trend which reinforces growing metabolic rift and so the separation of people and nature. These projects build on long histories of colonial and neocolonial resource alienation in the name of the environment. A focus on individual land ownership further entrenches the displacement and attempted genocide of indigenous people that has occurred throughout much of the world. 
Aside from collective approaches to land ownership, for example, land trusts, it is essential that permaculturists, permaculturalists from settler backgrounds support the struggle for indigenous land rights globally and within their own region. Yeah. As two very white guys. It is also important to move our language from one of ownership of land to one of caretaking and attachment. That's got a big picture from Dapple. Limits of... No dabble, rather. Limits of professionalization in the entrepreneurial model. For the last few years, leading permacultural teachers and designers have been discussing the establishment of standardized diploma program for permaculture practitioners. Currently, the established way to become a permaculture practitioner is by attending a permaculture design course. A quick look at PDCs offered in North America this summer show the majority to be the standard two-week immersive program with a price range of $800 to $1,500. Now, I want to point out that there are free versions of this where it's maybe a video series with some tasks. Um, They're not, like, accrediting, but that's the thing. Like, for accredited program, you need to set up a school, and that requires a lot of some capital, and that requires charging a thousand dollars at least. Yeah. And I've looked at doing these myself because if I was kind of a good worker boy, I guess I would be, or a good professional seeking a career, this would be the kind of career path that I would be wanting to take. Right. Of getting this kind of certification and then being a permaculture consultant slash designer, hmm. uh, even without my architecture license. But it would be in the process of building a business like this that eventually right. I would work with architects, if, you know, for real not just piecemeal or whatever, or potential. But uh, I don't want to buy in or sell out. And right. I also, I would see a doing that as professionalizing this and then taking it out of the hands of uh, people in the hood. Right. Right. I'd be doing it for them, for a salary, as a nonprofit or business event. You know, I would need to be paid by some government grant to do permaculture in the hood instead right. of just doing it. At least that's the way I see it. People who attend PDCs usually travel and must live on site for the two weeks. This limits PDCs to people who can afford the fee and the travel costs and people who who can be away from family or work for 14 plus days. Proponents of the professionalization of permaculture argue that it can establish mainstream legitimacy for the movement, which has been viewed as a fringe movement and that it can provide right livelihoods for people. However, professionalization of what is also a social and environmental movement has fundamental problems that may limit the transformative potential of permaculture. As Ivan Illich, as mentioned before, uh, points out in his seminal book, De-Schooling Society, people who have been schooled down to size let unmeasured experience slip out of their hands. To them, what cannot be measured becomes secondary, threatening. Under instruction, they have unlearned to do their things or be themselves and value only what has been made or could be made. Illich goes on to critique the development of professions for the way which they disempower people from active participation in their own lives. Professions, he argues, are dominant, authoritative, monopolistic, legalized, and at the same time debilitating and effectively disabling the individual. 
if permaculture aims to help people connect deeply as part of nature as to reestablish forms of what Marx describes as sensuous human activity and to contribute to creating a regenerative and just society, then this push for professionalization seems inherently problematic. So, like, yeah, the, the point that to professionalize, a, like, to make this a skill, a service right. that's provided, is to make it a commodity and thus a marketable trait, and then you can't be a social movement, you right. can't do social change. And this is something that, when it comes to a lot of nonprofit work, is once it's professionalized, it's not social work anymore. Right. Or it's not making social change. No, it's just a job. Um, mm-hmm. And that, but see, then there's always this pressure to get a real job. Yeah. And that's kind of the pressure I feel sometimes when it comes to like, well, you could be doing this, but for pay. Right. Do what I do, you know, and like, well, if I do do it for pay, then I'm not changing the world anymore, at least not the way I see it. Right. I'm not doing the social revolution. I'm not being a, you know, a hippie. Right. Yeah. Some people have also critiqued the emphasis on entrepreneurship within permaculture. Instead of encouraging permaculturalists to be community organizers or activists, they are more often encouraged to find a way to establish a livelihood as a landscape designer, farmer, or educator. Not only are small businesses and small farms notoriously hard to set up, requiring capital and bank loans, but this also risks turning permaculture into a for-profit enterprise that commodifies practices, techniques, and ideas that should be uncommodifiable. Should be. Or that should be uncommodifiable. No, I'm not correcting you. I'm just emphasizing that they should be, but it doesn't mean that they Mm -hmm. are. I mean... I'm sure some point in the 80s, like, goth, it's so foreign and alienating. Surely this couldn't be made into some profit enterprise. Right. But not, like, that topic just comes to mind immediately. Yeah. That, that you could make this into a brand. You know, yeah. Marilyn Manson aesthetic. As Federici and Cafatis or something like that uh, argue, we now live in a world in which everything from the water we drink to our body, cells, and genomes has a price tag on it. And no effort is spared to ensure that companies have the right to enclose the last open spaces on Earth and force us to pay it to gain access to them. It's not about making the frogs gay, okay? It's about making money, Lebowski. <laughs> what does turning permaculture into a practice easily consumed within capitalism mean for the movement? This brings us back to the deeply prom- problematic issue of colonialism and racism. Mollison and Holmgren, by their own admission, gleaned the knowledge and skills of indigenous and traditional communities, creating a clear set of easily digestible principles that make up the concept of permaculture. They did this partly as an attempt to confront the degradation of nature by industrial agriculture and capitalist development. But some of the knowledge and skills they gathered were developed by specific, identifiable communities of people. Acknowledging the innovation and specific contributions of indigenous people is an important part of the decolonialization process. And that's the real revolution, folks. This means that we should not try to own, brand, or commodify these skills or practices, you know, make a living or make money off of it. In fact, decolonizing permaculture means we must go even further than acknowledgement and decommodification, as I will discuss later. Now, there is a kind of double bind I want to mention, so I don't come off as some purist, that I understand that in order to actually do permaculture, you do, in fact, need a bit of money. You do need some legitimacy. 
and it does need to go mainstream, so to speak. But the craw and the the craw of it is that when you go mainstream, that is kind of synonymous with selling out because to go mainstream is to be accepted by Wall Street capital. And then you're working for the quote-unquote bad guys. Yep. Whether it be, if you say, a Trump fan, the, you know, blood-sucking elites of one type. The deep state. The deep state, the Epstein pedophile, the pedophiles, you know, whatever you want to think of them. But let's put some Marxist lens on them and call them the ruling class. Yeah. And if once it's something's mainstream, it means that's acceptable, you know, whether it's gay marriage. And so, and there are benefits to, yeah. And thus, but the argument, of course, the reformist argument is always that there is a benefit from this process, you know, it helps LGBTQ, gay rights and gay marriage was all product of it being commodified or being accepted by capital right. that this is no longer a th- it's not a threat because it's it's actually they want to be married they want to be quote unquote like everyone else right. they're no longer out not just outsiders by you know culture but they're not challenging right the patriarchy or not whatever challenging or, or the status quo the status quo exactly and if permaculture stops challenging the status quo by being just another service like IT support but obviously superior to it and that it's using soft infrastructure instead of the hard, complex, expensive right. computers, it's, it's still argued that that's, a, that's good, and it is, but it isn't social transformation. Right. It isn't getting beyond yeah. this, the, the cycle of violence and poverty. Other knowledge and skills incorporated within permaculture practice are arguably common to non-capitalist agrarian communities, and can be viewed as part of humanity's common knowledge and heritage about how to live within systems of nature. If permaculture is a movement that seeks to draw from the common heritage of humanity, it should be available to all. Just as seeds are widely regarded by food activists as part of the commons of humanity, so should the skills and practices which enable humans to live regeneratively within natural ecosystems. The question of whether permaculture needs to be professionalized to gain mainstream legitimacy is entirely the wrong question. One of the principles of permaculture is to use edges and value the marginal. As uncomfortable as it may be for some people to be on the edges of mainstream society, if we agree that our society is based on a system of exploitation, oppression, and alienation of people and the earth, Maybe the edges is exactly where we need to not only be, but to bring others. Now, I just got a metaphor that comes to mind about like how to conceptualize or think about what, uh, what, like, can we, how does the society is just edge? You know, it's all edginess. (laughs) Um, how we not (laughs) have edge, no point. It's almost like saying, like, it's like the goal that I'm putting forward or where we radical thinking this article puts forward is that we, we, we shouldn't have a mainstream because to have a mainstream is to set up a hierarchy. All right. How do you do that? Well, the thing is it all comes, you know, it comes back around to the small is beautiful, small is necessary. When you have small, pieces you have like think of a mosaic a mosaic is a lot is a big picture to society yeah or it's, it's a bigger whole but it's a lot of small pieces yeah and it's if you calculate no you know it's just ratio of how many edges are in a mosaic 
you have all these little pieces that all have edges mm-hmm. that are touching or not, you know, they're, they're touching each other. And, and that's kind of how neighborhoods work. You know, think of a neighborhood as being a, a good city is a mosaic of neighborhoods. Yeah. Each with its own identity of sorts. Mm-hmm. Could be a subculture, could be the use of it, you know, is industrial or is it the drinking district or is it uh, where the art is? Or the, uh, or the student district. Yeah, yeah, and so on, so on. Student ghetto. <laughs> um, and so on and so on. Yeah. And and that's kind of where urban planning and other and art is good, where you have dif- differentiation. You know, things are different and they're all not one big mass that has to conform, you know, sort of break conformity and... Right. But not just that everyone is quote unquote marginal, but in not in relation to each other, because what makes the mosaic is that it's part of a whole. There's solidarity to some greater purpose. Permaculture is most transformative when it offers a radical imagination of the possible, a philosophy instead of practices based on cooperation, co-creation, and solidarity, not just between humans, but with extra human nature. Permaculture is one of several counter. Hegemonic, here's, here's the real word of the day, counter-hegemonic worldview, which includes agroecology, pan-indigenous movements, and that posits that humans are an integral part of the Earth ecosystem. We're not separate from it. For much of humanity, you know, really, really fight that narcissism. For much of humanity, played a cooperative, beneficial role in creating ecosystems, meaning us. Uh, permaculture teaches that the norm within healthy ecosystems is that all of these things cooperate and they're not competing. The earth's full of abundance, permaculturists will point out, not in the form of capitalist commodities, uh, but like, like the wooden trees, but in the form of energy from the sun and the wind and the water and life. Yes, it's all very sunshine lollipops. Permaculture is strongest as a critique of the alternative model and and an alternative model to capitalist commodification of nature. To fight back against Malthusian-inspired environmentalist rhetoric about scarcity, population growth. The problem is not people. Permaculture, philosophy contends, but the current system under which people are forced to live. Permaculture has the potential to be part of visioning a post-capitalist future alongside other social, environmental, and other justice movements, like BLM. Although the movement begin, began as a reimagining of an agrarian landscape in an advanced capitalist country like Australia, it has most emancipatory potential in reimagining how cities might be spaces in which humans and nature co-create and cooperate. Quoting Jane Jacobs, Lively, diverse, intense cities contain the seeds of their own regeneration, with energy enough to carry over for problems and needs outside of themselves. One of the benefits of creating permaculture projects in cities is that urban neighborhoods can be more easily developed into bright, vibrant communities. That's a buzzword for capital, too, vibrance, uh, based on difference, like a mosaic. Uh, a Toby Hemingway, or Hemingway, a popular permaculture author and teacher in the U.S., wrote extensively about the greater potential to create permaculture projects in cities rather than the countryside. The great strength of any city, he wrote, is the social capital, the synergy and opportunity uh, generated by creative people working together. This reaffirms one of the most important principles of permaculture. And, of course, as the pandemic continues and we're all basically unemployed and starving, we're all going to have to get real creative real fast. As Pandora Thomas, founder of the Black Permaculture Network, 
and Starhawk, founder of Earth Activist Training State, we are committed to envision, design, and create a world in which we affirm and celebrate human diversity, where we can learn about one another's perspectives, support one another's struggles. Such statements do not include words like revolution or socialism, but I think they, there's a place there for it eventually. One of the most promising aspects of permaculture is the potential to contribute to projects like uh, Charterton and Pinkerney, Pinkerlil in 2010, described as interweaving anti, post, and despite capitalisms. Since the creation of the concept of permaculture, some practitioners have concerned themselves with creating autonomous human communities that serve as a critique and alternative to the dominant society. This sounds very close to the concept of an anti-capitalist commons, articulated by Fadrici and Cavadetes, already mentioned, uh, as autonomous spaces from which to reclaim control over the conditions of reproduction. This is dual power work and all, all over. Creating anti-post and despite capitalist commons may seem tricky, especially with pressures from both market and the state. There is constant danger of such projects being co-opted. And they warn, either commons are a means to the creation of an egalitarian and cooperative society, or they risk deepening these social divisions, making havens for those who can afford them, which is what a lot of hippie projects in the 70s eventually you know, became, and therefore more easily ignore the misery by which they are surrounded. I've got it from here. Okay. However, there are projects and initiatives both within and outside the permaculture movement that offer hopeful possibilities. These include food forests on public lands, the reclamation of vacant lots and abandoned buildings as community spaces, and worker-owned cooperatives. Hell yeah, co-ops. The permaculture movement can also learn from movements that use occupations as a strategy, including urban squatters, workers who recover factories, and landless peasants. These projects and initiatives can complement activist organizing. An anti-capitalist commons are not the end point of a struggle to construct a non-capitalist world, but its means. They argue, for no struggle will succeed in changing the world if we do not organize our reproduction into a communal way. The decision to remain on the edges of our society, as strong critics and social experimenters, may be filled with uncertainty, complexity, and messiness of human life. But it also allows us the space for radical imaginations to grow and multiply. Resistance is fertile. <laughs> I like that. You haven't heard that one before? I haven't heard that. That's good. Occupy is it all the time. All right. Um, at least there are a number of banners with that phrase on there. And it's got a, you know, the big fist uh, with uh, vines growing around it. And it's got a lot of sources. This is a very well-researched piece, uh, at least as far as a lot of different books uh, talking about all this stuff. Uh, which is which has been going on since uh, even the seventies. You know, Illich was in the seventies. Mm. So you have the the Montessori model and the kind of de-schooling movement, which kind of takes the form of the more left-leaning homeschoolers, mm. which is to take a very holistic approach to education, not sort things into subjects like English, math, science, but actually just do projects, do project-based learning. Uh, just to, you know, say, hey, let's 
build a car and you know or, or learn how learn about cars. So let's learn about how to build a car, what goes into building a car, how does a car work? So you you know, learn about chemistry and physics, about combustion and physics about movement of cars, you know. Yeah. So you just you just start with a topic that the kid may be interested in like cars and then you just go go about everything about it in in any direction, in all directions. Hmm. So, yeah, good. Uh, We are in the last minutes. Great. First, my profound thanks for listening, which is the skills important as talking. So I plan to listen to any constructive feedback, what we do, ideas for the show, stories or topics you'd like to hear discussed. Send them, message them, please, on Facebook or Twitter at 3LeftShow. There's also an email now, 3LeftShow at Gmail. This program is made as a part of an independent community radio so support us in that materially, along with, do- so with a donation or a membership, importantly, to WCAALP. If you also own a business in the Albany area, we are looking for underwriters. Please email us. Uh, go to grandarts.org to learn about that. Support us with your time by telling others you believe would be interested about the show, liking and sharing our social media. This episode and the last 10 are broadcast on most podcasting apps, but a full archive of the podcast, along with notes and info about myself, are found at 3lefts.news. This is episode... You know what? Is this the 100th episode? This is the 100th episode. Yeah, it's the we 100th didn't, episode. We didn't, we didn't make it a special episode, but um, I, didn't, you know, I didn't plan ahead. Because oh, I'm, no. I'm doing this every week. I, right. Know. I'm just planning for the next one. You know, it's just nowhere but through. No way forward but through. <laughs> uh, so, of course, the most important thing is to put these ideas, this thinking, and the projects, think, 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 and practice. Put this into practice yourself. So be well, keep it rad, and keep waving the flags of the three lefts. Yay.